This program is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. For details on becoming a member or making a one-time donation, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Progressive, The Colbert Report, Media Matters, and Citizen Radio with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. NBC's chief foreign correspondent, my friend Richard Engel, knows more about the Taliban than anybody else I have ever worked with in news. Here's what Richard thinks we all should understand about them to know what's at stake, especially if the Taliban are going to be called on to do a deal to end the war. It was here in the streets of Kandahar that the Taliban were born from the crucible of war. When Soviet troops withdrew from Afghanistan in defeat in 1989, civil war erupted. Warlords and opium dealers carved out fiefdoms. The country was on the brink of starvation. In Kandahar, a poor wheat farmer named Mullah Muhammad Omar offered a radical solution. Stability, he said, would come through strict Islamic justice and zero tolerance for drug trafficking and corruption. Mullah Omar attracted many young followers, especially Afghans who'd studied in Pakistani madrasas. They called themselves the Taliban, literally meaning religious students. The Taliban are Deobandi Muslims, a hardline evangelical sect of Sunni Islam. Many Deobandis believe it is their duty to rid the world of tyranny through jihad. And they were about to receive outside help. It came from Afghanistan's neighbor, Pakistan, eager to pursue its own interests. Pakistan's objective in Afghanistan has always been strategic. Pakistan wants a proxy in Afghanistan to strengthen its western flank in case of renewed war with Islamabad's bitter and larger enemy, India. The Pakistani intelligence agency, the ISI, also found the zealous Taliban willing to allow Pakistan to train Islamic militants to fight India in the contested lands of Kashmir. Backed by the ISI, the Taliban captured Kabul in 1996 and imposed shocking draconian laws. Music and even kites were outlawed. Women were denied education and forced to wear burqas. They were stoned for adultery. It wasn't long before the rogue Saudi billionaire Osama bin Laden came looking for a base to attack the United States. Mullah Omar welcomed bin Laden as a brother. From Afghanistan, bin Laden plotted the attacks of 9-11. But the Taliban may have misjudged the American response. The Taliban's army of some 30,000 fighters was quickly defeated. The survivors, including bin Laden, took refuge in the one place they knew they'd be safe the mountains of Pakistan across the border. From Pakistan, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda continue to fight. According to U.S. military estimates, the Taliban are now at roughly the same strength as before 9-11, with 28,000 fighters in Afghanistan, 13,000 in the south, 11 in the east, two in the north, and two more in the west. But there are signs the Taliban may be willing to make a deal. Wakil Ahmed Mutawakil was the Taliban's foreign minister. As a spokesman for Mullah Omar, he met bin Laden. Now in Kabul, says the Taliban would be willing to break ties with al-Qaeda, 
in exchange for power and peace. In the past, the Taliban were like the owners of the house, and Al-Qaeda were guests here, he says. Now Al-Qaeda are war partners. The Afghan government has foreign war partners. If peace exists, both sides won't need their foreign allies. The U.S.-backed Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, has made it clear he wants a deal with the Taliban. In a meeting this summer, he called on the militants to join a peace process. But those negotiations have been disorganized. Turkey, Libya, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Pakistan, the Maldives, Malaysia and Indonesia have all offered to broker talks. Mutawakil says the peace process needs to be streamlined and the Taliban need an office to organize negotiations. The Taliban should be removed from international blacklists, he says. Some prisoners should be released and the Taliban should be allowed to safely establish a political office in Afghanistan or in another country. Surprisingly, several senior U.S. military commanders agree. But would the Taliban really make peace with President Karzai? I'm very skeptical that it's going to go very far because I don't think the Taliban is interested in a political process. I think the Taliban has one intention for President Karzai, and that involves a lamppost and a piece of rope. In the mountains of eastern Afghanistan, a Taliban stronghold near the Pakistani border, we met Malavi Nasir, a 45-year-old Taliban field commander. He claims to be in charge of 300 fighters. I took up arms, he says, because the Americans terrorized our country. They are killing innocent people and bombing our villages. We are fighting to defend our religion. I won't stop fighting until foreign forces leave. While the rank and file of the Taliban's foot soldiers say they want to keep on fighting, senior U.S. military officials tell NBC News the Taliban's most senior leaders, who are still in Pakistan, are getting older and want to come home. They'd make a deal, U.S. officials believe, in exchange for amnesty and positions in the government. But many Afghans object to an accommodation with the Taliban. They don't want a return to harsh Islamic laws and suspect the United States is simply looking for an excuse to broker a deal and then exit this long, costly war. We Afghans won't have a, a political settlement, but we are not willing to abandon what we achieved uh, in the past nine years, for example, in terms of democracy, human rights, women's rights, free media and free speech. And I think President Karzai is not reaching out to the Taliban in Pakistan, he's, he's surrendering himself to them. obvious story of all time look if you watch this show the problem is if you watch today's show you're not going to want to watch tomorrow's show you know why because i already told you what's coming because I, I predicted the future and you don't have to watch the future i already told you what's going to happen but today's a perfect example guess what the yeah, general petraeus and the young officer corps who are trained in counterinsurgency and have been doing it in afghanistan guess what they want to do they want to make the afghanistan war longer Really? 
But you already knew that because you watched The Young Turks. <laughs> of course! New York Times is a story about, oh, uh, you know what? Now, the, forget the other seven years or eight years we were in Afghanistan. We weren't really trying. We were just kidding around. By the way, Petraeus was also in the military at the time. I don't know why he was kidding around. Now, to be fair, he wasn't in charge of Afghanistan, okay? But he was in charge of a lot of things and had a lot of influence. But before, they were playing patty cakes with the Taliban, right? Okay, so that's going on. Now they say, oh, now we got serious. So now you've got to give us more time. Uh, well, it doesn't seem to be working now, but of course, we just got started. You know Petraeus is going to do Meet the Press uh, this weekend. He's going to do a media blitz, and the message is going to be, look, all of the surge troops that Obama ordered haven't even come into the country yet. In other words, after how many years we've been there now, close to nine, we're just getting started. So give us another two years. And now Defense Secretary Gates has already said, well, July 2011, the president talked about it. It could be really small troop movements. I mean, we, we'll probably stop, start troop withdrawal, but maybe like two or three guys. <laughs> he didn't say maybe two or three guys, but that was the implication. And now Petraeus is saying, no, 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 I need much more time. Really, I couldn't have seen that coming. So the question is going to be, as usual, what will President Obama do? When, as we get closer to the deadline that he set, is he going to go, oh, well, you know what? The generals are going to yell at me, and they already went into the press and said we needed more time and more troops. Fox News is going to yell at me. John McCain and Lindsey Graham are going to yell at me. Lieberman is going to yell at me. Okay, let's just stay a couple more years. Or is he going to say, hey, look, did I stutter? Look, I fired McChrystal. I'm getting out of Iraq. And I said uh, July of 2011. And, you know, we did the best we could. And we got some good results and some results we didn't get that we wanted to get. And that's life. All right, we are beginning withdrawal. It's not going to happen overnight, as he said himself. Not lights out. But you know what? The withdrawal begins. And it's real. And it's serious. I'm not taking out 13 guys. Okay? And, the t and Afghanistan has to figure out how to govern itself. Th that is a totally open question. And I'm not prejudging that. Okay? So we'll s and that's a long time away, so we'll see what Obama does there. But it'll be another defining moment for President Obama. Is he going to get intimidated? And it, it, you know what? And it might be that we should stay longer. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I'm on the other side of this. The only reason I'm saying that is that it's a long time away, and I don't want to say the only reason Obama would stay in Afghanistan longer is because he was intimidated. Let's get to that point, and then we'll judge what the facts are and whether it makes sense or not. But I, I just want to lay it out as another marker for you guys, because that propaganda has begun. The Washington establishment and the Pentagon and the defense contractors definitely want to stay in Afghanistan longer. They basically said, mm, stovetop, we're staying. Does anybody understand that reference? Okay, I say it all the time. It's an old 1980s commercial. It's true. <laughs> anyway, so they want to stay. The question is, what is Obama going to do? And that's the marker, and we'll find out, you know, in about a... We'll start, we'll certainly start to figure it out in about a year. We'll see how it goes. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, 
$5 a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. This is one of two things I think our society has jettisoned. And if you don't have either one of these things, you're transitioning into another kind of system. More on that in a second. But the first thing is accountability. Now, how often have we talked about this? Nobody is held accountable for anything. The worst thing that ever happens in our system, the worst, and you know, doesn't happen very often, is somebody loses their job. The truth is is that the sort of monumental decisions that this country's been making for the last 10 years or so, if you want to get crazy, you can go 30 years even, require there to be consequences for being wrong, and consequences above and beyond, okay, I lose my job, I'll just go become a lobbyist instead, darn it. Doesn't work that way, folks. If you were making these level decisions in the private sector, and you screwed up as big as some of our people have been screwing up in the decision-making realm, low these last one to three decades, you would be in jail. Even in our corrupt, you know, corporate-bought system we have here, you'd be Bernie Madoff. You'd be in jail. At least. <laughs> at least. I don't know what's worse, but you know. You screw up in most societies at the level some of our people have screwed up in the decision-making process. You don't get to get off scot-free. There's no accountability in our system anymore. Which brings us to the second part of this, you know, two-headed monster. There's also no debate. Glenn Greenwald's other column, the one from before the recent one on um, the situation in Iraq, when is this? Uh, I don't know when this is, Ben. This is about going to be about four days before, though, given his, uh, his output. Uh, and it's entitled, Lawsuit Challenges Obama's Power to Kill Citizens Without Due Process. Now, this is something else we've talked about. This is uh, President Obama saying that he can kill an American citizen because we think he's involved in terrorism, and he never has to have a trial, never has to have any due process. A person in the State Department can basically label this guy a threat, and boom, the president believes he can be taken out. Now, it's an interesting article because they go on to talk about things you wouldn't even think of, how the ACLU, for example, has to file this case for him because he can't do anything himself because if he shows up, we'll kill him. When it talks about all the various constitutional provisions that we are violating by making a rule like this, that you can go kill an American citizen without due process, um, go read the column if you want those sorts of details. I'm interested in another aspect of it, though. I'm interested in the aspect that, once again, we have another decision where not only is there no debate, but nobody has to even stand up and justify this policy to us. Did President Obama have a speech where he announced this major change in U.S. policy, where we're going to go kill American citizens overseas without any due process if somebody decides that they're a terrorist? No, he didn't have any conversation with us about it. He didn't have any conversation with Congress about it. He's just doing it. Now, we shouldn't single Barack Obama out. He's doing exactly what the guy before him did. We've gone away, and it's been a long time since we've had the idea that the people should be involved in these kinds of momentous decisions. We don't have debate about these issues. We just have to sit back and accept them. No debate plus no accountability when you're wrong equals disaster. A person 
in the top job in the executive branch of this government can make a decision all by themselves or with the help of their close associates, you know, John Yoo and John Bolton and company, if that's who they are, or President Obama's, you know, equivalents. And then if they're wrong about that decision, there's no price to pay for being wrong about that decision. So if you're going to hold, if you're going to say the government is one guy or one woman eventually, and that they have the power in wartime, which we're in permanently, um, to do whatever they want, and there's no comeuppance later if they're wrong, ladies and gentlemen, what do you have there? I'll tell you what it does. But what it should do is it should give us all a whole lot of, you know, feeling of being more humble. How's that for massacring a sentence, Ben? But I think people know what I mean. We ought to be more understanding, I guess you could say, of those people who live through societies that descended into totalitarianism or dictatorship or some form of government that was a descent from where they were. So easy for Americans to read history books and say, well, look at these stupid Germans. How did they ever end up with a dictatorial regime? And these Italians and Mussolini and, well, you know, fill in the blank. There's a bazillion examples from history, right? But I'm starting to feel like we're getting a first-hand taste of exactly, you know, what the emotion might have been in a majority of the people in these populations while all that was happening to them. And the feeling is powerlessness, isn't it? You just feel like you're watching this train wreck happening in slow motion and you have no ability to alter the outcome at all. And we're having no debate about it and there'll be no accountability later. Now, if the system were working properly, what would happen in just a couple of months? Well, if the system were working properly in a couple of months, the Republicans would run against everything that President Obama has done, and they would slam him on all these issues, right? They would slam him on the Fourth Amendment one we talked about in the first segment. They would slam him on, you know, making it legal to kill American citizens anywhere in the world without due process on the voice of one, you know, State Department bureaucrat. But they're not going to do that, folks. And as a matter of fact, if they manage to win back, you know, power in either House or the Senate, um, the prediction is that you're going to get a lot of investigations. And, you know, part of me sits there and goes, well, good, because we need some, right? But the kind of investigations you're going to get are the kind we got the last time the Republicans did this with a sitting Democratic president. We're going to get, you know, they're going to look into Barack Obama's equivalent of whitewater, and the missing travel records, and, you know, the kind of things that they went after Bill Clinton for. And one of the things I said at the time was that there were things that Bill Clinton did that he should have been thrown out of the White House for. A perfect example is the taking of money from China, you know, for electioneering. Now, why didn't the Republicans nail him on that? We could have had a president out of the White House in disgrace. They didn't nail him on that because when they found out what he was doing, it sounded like a great idea to them. Gee, if the president can raise money from foreign countries, well, we can too. So let's get him on the travel gate thing. Well, that's what you're going to get here too, folks. I mean, if Republicans ran against some of the things Barack Obama's doing as the chief executive, they would be running against precedents set by the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration. This is your, you know, powerful chief executive, ladies and gentlemen, which you know, this White House and the White House before it and several White Houses in various times before that will tell you, have absolute and total dictatorial power in wartime. 
the unitary executive theory is just one of the kinds of viewpoints that the adherence to these kinds of ideas, I would suggest that these are the kind of people who believe in a more dictatorial presidency, and the unitary executive doctrine slash theory is how they justify it. People like John Yoo, who famously answered a question from a congressman investigating exactly what sort of advice he gave to the Bush administration. Because, folks, remember, I mean, you're not allowed to even know what this stuff was. So he said to John Yoo, he said, so let me get this straight. If the president wanted to crush the testicles of a small boy in front of his family to get someone in the family to disclose important information, does the president have the power to do that? And John Yoo's answer, which should tell you everything, ladies and gentlemen, was, well, it would depend on what he wanted to do that for. Does President Obama have the constitutional authority to kill Americans overseas on the theory that they might be terrorists? And the answer will be, well, it depends on you know why he thinks that. Folks, these are the kind of legal loopholes that rationalize you know tyranny. Tyrannies. Talk about hyperbole. Here we go. Boom into hyperbole land, right? But what do you do when hyperbole becomes the truth? One of the worst aspects of that, by the way, um, you know, Ben, you know, I'm thinking, Ben and I are always trying to, I'm sorry to go off this little digression, but Ben and I are always thinking about little extra ways we might earn a little extra money. And one of them is we're think, we always think, well, let's just do a show in addition to the Common Sense and Hardcore History shows we already do that's just a paid download. You know, we wouldn't deny you any of your free stuff. It'd just be extra stuff. And there's one of these uh, shows I want to do because the subject is so weird and so off the beaten path and so... Uncredible. I don't want to say incredible because incredible makes it sound like it's great. It's just it's it's not credible um, that I wouldn't want to subject you folks to it. But I feel like in a sense, we're almost suggesting, you know, that to you now, aren't we? That's the problem when hyperbole becomes truth. Truth becomes unbelievable. You write off other people's opinions because they're saying, can you believe what's happening here in the United States where there's no debate? on these issues they just happen to us and there's no accountability if when these decisions are made without our input they're wrong sometimes disastrously wrong i mean well folks just look at the banking thing now full disclosure right full disclosure i said at the time that i thought we probably had no choice in the bailouts that president bush and then president obama um, chose as the course to try to remedy the financial straits we were in now I said that because the rationale was we have to trust the experts sometimes. Same rationale I have with global warming and everything else. I mean, sometimes you have to just say, look, how can we possibly know? The experts say it's all going to go down the tubes if we don't do this. I guess we have to do this. But here's the caveat. The caveat is there has to be ramifications if you're wrong. There has to be something for the people making these decisions to go, boy, we really better be sure we're right about this. In my opinion, and I've said this before, ladies and gentlemen, when presidents do things that are illegal or wrong or just terribly flawed, huge mistakes where they should have seen otherwise, they need to be brought up on charges. People need to go to jail. Sanctions need to happen. Disgrace needs to be thrown around a little bit. There needs to be a disincentive for future people in that position to, you know, be as reckless. 
the same sorts of disincentives you have in private industry, where if somebody breaks a law, if somebody does a pyramid scheme, if somebody goes too far or just makes a decision and says, oh, I think this is legal, don't you? Well, we'll take it on my authority. I think this is, uh, you know, it's in a gray area. I'm calling it legal. And if it turns out to be illegal, and there were people at the time saying, I disagree, I think this is illegal, heads should roll. And every single one of us will think that's a good thing, Dan. You know, I mean, if you don't have those kind of things, there's no disincentive to just go off you know, crazy around the bend. So why would we feel different about the president? Does the president have the right to assassinate Americans overseas anytime he wants to? Yes, he does. Why does he have that right? Because he took it. Who talked about it and gave it to him? Nobody. Are we having a debate about it? No. We're talking about it. A lot of people are. Glenn Greenwald's talking about it in his last column. It doesn't matter. We're allowed to talk about it, ladies and gentlemen. They just don't have to talk about it. They don't have to justify it. They don't have to explain it. It's all part of the secrecy that goes on in an ongoing war on terror. And as you all know, our president has allowed extraordinary powers in wartime. The catch, of course, is that it's supposed to be a temporary situation, isn't it? Wartime is supposed to be temporary. As we've told you many times before, ladies and gentlemen, when does the war on terror end? When does the war on terror end? If you have unlimited power in wartime and we're in a war that has no logical end, you're living under martial law, ladies and gentlemen. Martial law with no end date. And it's not going to matter who you elect at the next election because nobody is running to you know, get us out of martial law. Nobody's running to turn the clock back. Nobody's running to increase the amount of debate we have on presidential decisions, on presidential authority. And nobody is running on more real accountability. So in a two-party system, which is what we're always told we have, and which, unfortunately for all of us, the decisions on presidents pretty much for more than a 100 years backs up, what do you do if there's no party offering redress of grievances on all these issues. Well, you get a bipartisan consensus that we would like to transition into a new form of government regardless of what the people want. And we're not going to talk about this transition because we don't have to. President Obama has a right to claim credit for bringing so many troops out of Iraq. He's making good on his campaign promise just a few months late, and while he's leaving 50,000 U.S. soldiers behind and tens of thousands of contractors, it's undeniable that they won't be doing the lion's share of patrolling Iraq, and that's a good thing.
But it's a peculiar time for Obama to be talking up his record as commander-in-chief since he's got himself and 100,000 U.S. troops in a real bog over in Afghanistan. Just since Saturday, we've lost 19 troops over there, some of the worst casualties since the U.S. invaded in search of bin Laden back in 2001. Now bin Laden's gone, hiding out most likely in Pakistan, and there are only about 100 al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan by most reports. So why do we have 100,000 troops chasing them? Well, our soldiers aren't exactly chasing al-Qaeda anymore. They're fighting the resurgent Taliban and propping up a terribly corrupt government in Kabul. This is the unsustainable war that Obama has ensnared us in. At some point, he's going to have to end combat operations in Afghanistan, just as he has in Iraq. And that day can't come soon enough. Hey, David Pakman here, host of the nationally syndicated Midweek Politics with David Pakman. If you're anything like me, you're a regular listener to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I want to invite you to check out my show, Midweek Politics with David Pakman. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists you've ever seen. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out midweekpolitics.com, check out my show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the Midweek Politics politics membership program. Because we have a momentous show tonight. <laughs> Tell them why, fellas. The last American combat troops are out of Iraq. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over. Woo! The Iraq War is over! We did it! Thank you. Now you may notice that uh, you may notice that I uh, that I have left a residual force of balloons up there, but those are non-combat balloons. They'll be staying there just in case there's an emergency uh, celebration they need to be there for. And, of course, we'll be adding some private contractor balloons later. Uh, there's going to be a lot of balloons up there for a while, is all I'm saying. The point is, we're out of Iraq. And best of all, we got out two weeks ahead of schedule. Now, now Iraq will always be remembered as the war that ended early. Who knew? That snuck up on us. Folks, this is a significant achievement. So let's give credit where credit is due to George W. Bush. Yes! After all, if this man hadn't led us into war, it certainly wouldn't be over now. As Senator John McCain tweeted, last American combat troops leave Iraq, I think President George W. Bush deserves some credit for victory. Yes! 106 characters of credit. Done and done. But I've got to say, i got to say, I'm kind of disappointed at how the end of the war was announced. Richard, I understand your reporting of this at this hour tonight constitutes the official Pentagon announcement, correct? Yes, it is. Really? The NBC Nightly News? 
the official announcement of the end of a seven-year war is the lead-in to Minute to Win It? I just, uh... And, 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 and really, a pre-dawn exit? What are we, slinking home after some one-night stand? I am so angry, I could do a word. What if you threw a piece and nobody came? Nation, during the election, Barack Obama was known for one thing more than any other. He was known for speech giving. But look how he announced the impending conclusion of this war. I made it clear that by August 31st, 2010, America's combat mission in Iraq would end. And that is exactly what we are doing, as promised and on schedule. As promised and on schedule? That's not a declaration of victory, that's a pizza delivery slogan. <laughs> Mr. President, Mr. President, it is your job to commemorate significant occasions, and I think it's pretty significant when a nation can say it's down to only one war. I gotta say, I gotta say, I miss President Bush on this one. Big Dog landed on the deck of an aircraft carrier in a sack-flattering flight suit and declared mission accomplished. That, that is how you do it. Well, seven long years later, we have a lot more to distract us, like iPads. It's going to be harder to get us interested in the end of the war, unless there's an app for that. So, Mr. President, Mr. President, here's how you should up your game. Go down to NASA and have them launch you up in the shuttle. At the edge of space, grab a beer, pop the door, and slide down the emergency chute. Then, you free fall until you rendezvous with a stealth bomber which drops its payload, a cowboy hat, and a wild stallion. You straddle that horse midair and you ride it all the way down, and only at the last minute you deploy two parachutes. One for you, and one for your giant balls. Now, you land... You land on top of the Washington Monument and you skateboard down the west face of that baby, pop a 360 ollie into the reflecting pool where you wrestle a great white shark dressed up like Saddam Hussein <laughs> to the death. Then you stride to a podium where the Army Corps of Engineers has constructed a megaphone out of the Liberty Bell and with a voice so clear, so righteous, that angels get boners. You, sir. <laughs> You, sir, declare unto this nation, victory is ours! Okay. Okay. That's how you do it. Now, now give me your best shot at declaring victory with Zaz. We are keeping the promise I made when I began my campaign for the presidency. By the end of this month, we will have removed 100,000 troops from Iraq and our combat mission will be over. How long was I out? Well, Mr. President, if you're not willing to celebrate the end of this war, I will. This September 8th and 9th, I will celebrate the end of Operation Iraqi Freedom and welcome home the heroes with two special episodes of the Colbert Report entitled, Been There, Won That. 
the returnification of the Americandu troopscape. So we got a great title. We're, we're still working on the opening graphics. Now, the studio audiences, the studio audiences will all be veterans and active military. We'll have Senator Jim Webb, General Ray Odierno, and Vice President Biden. After seven years, seven long years in Iraq, we will give our soldiers what they've been yearning for. We will give them appreciation. Because no matter how you felt about this war, we Americans sent them off to fight it. And now that it's over, we should thank them. And quickly, because I think a lot of them are getting sent to Afghanistan. Our top story today, President Obama addressed the nation last night, talking about the end of the seven-year American combat mission in Iraq. Last night and again this morning, Fox went on the attack. Why was he so boring? Now he's the boring professor, not the nutty professor, the boring professor. I'm not asking for him to be histrionic or emotional. Be a person. Uh, your reaction, I was not impressed. And the fact that he doesn't say, we accomplished our mission, you don't have to say mission accomplished. We were victorious. Honor our troops for the success of the mission that we set them out to do. So here's a debate, guys, this morning. Did the president thank President Bush? Hello, new listeners. Jay from Best of the Left played our little interview. I already received a very kind email saying, it turns out, Allison, yes. that when you listen to our full show, mm-hmm. as opposed to little clips of us being borderline retarded, mm-hmm. the show makes sense, yeah. and people know that we talk about really serious issues. I, yeah, I just realized that, that Jay kind of lifts us out of context, because he's a clip show, so obviously he has to greatly cut down what we're actually saying. So literally what they're just hearing is us being like, dur, 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 citizen radio. Israel commits war crimes. They're like, why does anyone listen to this? <laughs> oh. It's like the rantings of a crazy person. Who, <laughs> who got inside of William Burroughs' head and released those demons <laughs> and gave them a radio show? So... Here's, if you don't know, both Allison and I are gay heroin junkies. Fact. So, no, I, I, I love Jay's show. And with the other shows, it absolutely makes sense. And Jay's picked really good clips of us. But, you know, a lot of times Jay, rightfully so, because this show uses what he thinks is funny. <laughs> a lot of times his audience disagrees. Yeah, Jay, much like us, Jay has a fucked up sense of humor. Yeah. That's why we get along. That's why he is one of our only friends. Exactly. And why he is Citizen Radio fan number one. Number one. So... Yeah, so we got this really nice email saying how, you know, this dude's always liked the clips Mm -hmm. of the shows that Jay has played, but he's never listened to a full episode. He just listens to the clips. But then he heard the interview and he was like, I'm going to listen to a a full episode. And he's like, oh, I I see what they do. So, so welcome, new Best of the Left listeners. So, recently, Glenn Greenwald wrote about the supposed Iraq withdrawal. Which, uh, if you watched the news, if you watched NBC... If you listened to Citizen Radio last week, we had some great coverage right. of that. You saw Richard Engel in the back of a truck 
broadcasting supposedly exclusive footage about the last combat troops, U.S. combat troops, leaving Iraq. It was supposed to be that, like, famous Vietnam shot of the last helicopter lifting off. It was a big, big coup for NBC to get that footage, right? So Glenn Greenwald writes about how that came about, which is essentially the Pentagon called NBC and said, you can have exclusive access to the last combat troops leaving Iraq if you frame the narrative as the last combat troops are leaving Iraq. And of course, NBC wanting this access, that's exactly how they framed the narrative, where they're like, the last combat troops are leaving Iraq, except, unconveniently, inconveniently, sorry, English majors, that's not true. Yeah, that's not true. The There's 50,000 troops that are still in Iraq. They're still armed. Um, you know, one troop just died. They're still in a combat environment. Nothing has changed. Allison. And additionally, there's over 100,000 private contractors there as well. There's several huge, huge bases. One is over the size of 80 football fields put together. Allison. Allison. I have a question for you, Miss Buzzkill. Actually, I have three. Number one, is Richard Angle dreamy? Honestly. I don't think so, but I know you think so. Question number two, have I been known to get lost in his eyes? Yes. Question number three, do I try to style my hair, even though my hair is not long enough, to look like Richard Angle in the mirror and practice my anti-war diatribes. You mean the angle wave? Yes. That's what it's actually called. Uh, Yes, you do do that. Affirmative. Okay, then we are out of Iraq. No, that's not true. That is true. That just means you're in love with Richard Angle. No, no. Yeah, it does, Jamie. It does. When, listen, that's not what it means. Yeah. When Richard Angle showed up in a minivan Mm -hmm. outside of my apartment and (laughs) said, I'm going to teach you how to do the angle wave. And I said, well, this seems normal. So I got into the van Mm -hmm. and and then yeah. he put this bag over my head, and I said, what's this? He goes, this helps the angle wave. And I right. said, well, that's weird, because I can't see. And he goes, do you want the angle wave or not? And I said, of course I want the angle wave. So then we drove and drove and drove, and I said, where are we going? Why does it smell like gas? And he's just like, in Richard Angle's world, sometimes things smell like gas. And I okay. said, okay. And then yeah. I'm seeing red. Right. I don't remember what We've happened. We've talked I about this before. Red. That was not Richard Angle. That was just someone who said they were Richard Angle. And you were kidnapped. How does this keep happening? I don't know. You have to Are stop getting advanced. Are you telling the kidnappers my weaknesses? Because no! it is very suspicious. Yeah, Jamie, that's what I do every day. I get up, I call your kidnappers, and I say, here are a list of his weaknesses. Oh. Because I have nothing else to do. How did they know that I love vegan chocolate from last time? Because you tell everyone. And how did they know that I love Richard Angle? Because when you introduce yourself to people, you say, you before you say, my name is Jamie Kilstein, you say, I, I love, love Richard chocolate. Angle and vegan chocolate. Yes. My name is Jamie Kilstein. Right. That's how you introduce yourself. With That's your... how everybody knows your weaknesses. No, and then I also say I'm surprised easily if somebody comes up from behind, I have a blind spot, and I can't really defend myself. My name is Jamie Alexander Kilstein. Yeah, I know. That's, That's how everybody knows. That's how I was taught to introduce myself. Here's how I was taught to introduce myself. A van pulls up, right? Mm-hmm. And they put me in the back of the van. And they say, whenever you introduce yourself, you need to tell everybody your greatest fears and your and your greatest likes and dislikes. And I said, okay. And they said, do you like a bag over your head? And I said, no. And they said, well, then you'd list that as your fear. And I say, oh, how convenient. I'm afraid of bags over my head. And then they say, well, you have to overcome that fear. And I say, okay. So they put the bag over my head. And I think, you know what? This isn't as bad as I thought it was. I'm a really brave. And then I see red. And that's why we're not leaving Iraq. Yeah. 
So I hope we all learned something. And I hope the oh, and I, I hope was... the people on Best of the Left enjoy that out of context clip that Jay will play. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> context free. <laughs> so here's where I was going with that, and this is what Glenn Greenwald wrote about. The AP refused to parrot the official Pentagon narrative, and they said we ha- we cannot say that combat troops are leaving Iraq. Here's why: because it's not fucking true, <laughs> and we're supposedly journalists. Yeah, the AP is filthy in their language, by the way. Yeah, they are. They're a li- they're the pirates of the journalism world. Tonight just announced the end of the Iraq War. I say we get this guy to Afghanistan. Please welcome Richard Engel. <laughs> Sir, nice to see you again. Please sit down. It's a pleasure. All right, having now, you on your show. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I've had you on before over at the little at the at the at the kids' table over exactly. here. Now we're over the big boys. I guess I've moved up. Absolutely, haven't we all? <laughs> you actually have moved up and moved on, and so have our troops. You reported something the other day that made a lot of news that it was reported, not just what you reported. We've got a little clip of it right here. Jim, can, can you roll for the good people what this man reported? Richard, I understand your reporting of this at this hour tonight constitutes the official Pentagon announcement, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> oh, good. Glad you gave it a lot of context there. Well, absolutely. Can you I set g- that up? G- you, you can set it up and you can set it out. Like, uh, give <laughs> us the context for what that was. How'd you get that report? Why are you the one who told the world that Operation Iraqi Freedom was done? Okay, what happened was this. The last American combat troops were leaving Iraq. Mm-hmm. And this was the last combat brigade. Operation Iraqi Freedom is a combat mission. It began right. in 2003, shock and awe and lasted until, until right now. boots on the ground. The combat mission. When you think of combat, troops, tanks, going into battles, formations, bang, surrounding bang. a city. All of the Fallujah, combat stuff, I remember. That, that Operation Iraqi Freedom is a combat mission. So when the last combat troops leave, the combat mission is over. So if the combat troops are gone, what troops are left? Like improv troops? Like what troops? <laughs> no, there is a there is a training mission now. Okay. And the the uh, these are advise and assist brigades. Okay. And they are still armed. They can still get into fights. Okay. But, but they no are more they're, boots on the ground. Well, the boot they're they're in Iraq. Okay. And are they wearing boots? And they're wearing boots. And they're not but, hovering on balloons. No. Okay. But what they do is they're not on a combat mission uh-huh. per se that these combat brigades are specifically designed and equipped to do offensive operations mm-hmm. to surround a town to go in cordon knock you knock down people's houses or knock down the doors at least kicking in doors start with the door then move to the walls or sometimes yes. you just you just blow a hole in the wall it really depends on the operation but those are combat operations we've seen a lot of them in Iraq mm-hmm. With the last combat brigade leaving, that phase of the moon is over. 
Operation Iraqi Freedom ended when Iraqi, with, when American combat troops what's it, left. What's it called now? It's it, got to have a name, right? Yes, Operation New Dawn. And the official, yeah, that's what it's called. That's nice. That's uh, nice. New Dawn Isn't has that all these one of the Twilight? It sounds books? like a. <laughs> New Dawn? And the, uh, that, that mission officially begins on September 1st. That's when the, there will be a ceremony, a new dawn begins. A new dawn is supposed to be this training mission where American troops are on their bases, working at, as advisors, helping the Iraqis fight. Okay, the president's given a speech on all this uh, Tuesday, Tuesday night, right? What, what do you think? Give us a little preview of what you think he's going to say. He's going to say that he kept his promise that all combat troops are out because they, they had till the end, they had till the 31st. I remember. So They but, totally jumped the gun. Well, that is logical. If you, let's say you gave me the operation, said, Richard, I want you to remove the audience from this building, and you have till I the end never, of the month. I would never do that. <laughs> well, go ahead, yes. Yes. But militarily speaking, let's say you said, Richard, I, everyone has to leave this building by the end of the month. Yes. And there's someone that wants to do harm to them. There's someone who wants to attack your audience. I don't know. Ooh, there it? might be people. That want to... Is it John Stewart? <laughs> okay. I wouldn't wait, and okay. the military certainly wouldn't wait till the last day to do that. Okay. You want to keep some element of surprise. So going back to the question what the you asked, what's going to say? Yeah. Well, the president's going to say I kept my promise, and the president's going to say he kept his promise. Did he keep I... his promise? Combat troops are out. Okay. Yes, he certainly did. All right. And he's going to say that. Is that, is that? Is that? Does he get to define what combat and troop means? Well, that the combat mission is over. That okay. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over. All right. As he, as he said it would be when the combat mission is out. So that's part of his speech. The other part of his speech is going to be much more difficult, which is going to say there is still a long road ahead. There are a lot of bombings in, uh, in Baghdad and other parts just of Iraq day, just like the other day. 46 people died, right? Uh, more than that. Okay. And then another six were killed today. So he will also have to say, yes, the combat mission is over, but America don't think that... Iraq is that the problem of Iraq is solved. What about the government there? I mean, uh, we, we, you know, we, we. I never answered your question, though. You asked me the initial question. How was it that I reported this initial report? How did we get to do that? You know, you're digging into this Richard Engel guy pretty, pretty strongly right here. <laughs> you asked let, me a question. I'll, I'll, no, I'll let you finish this uh, question. Ask yourself again. <laughs> you asked me the question. Uh, no, you I understand, me on, I but you're backing me up in ways that I never would. Now, so how did you get the scoop? Did you get the it was, bat phone? How it did was you amazingly easy, and this is what's shocking. There were so many reporters that went in and covered Iraq when it first began. Hundreds of reporters yeah. spending millions of dollars to cover this war when it began. Most people turned down this embed. Most reporters didn't want to do it. And we just this happened to be embed, there. This last embed. They, there were two American soldiers standing there to salute the last combat troops as they crossed the border in Kuwait and a handful of cameras. We happen to be one of them. Okay, now let's, let, let, let's, let's talk about that little truck you were on just there as you were driving out. Very cool piece of equipment. Very cool piece of equipment. I imagine they had a bumper sticker that said, my other war is Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> what, let, let, let's, move on, let's move on to Afghanistan for a second, which yes. I'm sure some of our troops are gonna do as well. There We've got 140,000 people in Afghanistan right now, okay? Of just us, not even coalition, right? Well, the, there's, the numbers continue to grow. I don't know what it is today, but that's about right. That's the circle of life. People, <laughs> people mate. And now, so 
is Afghanistan, uh, it has a timetable. You, you go over to Afghanistan all, all the, time, the time, right? Okay. Now, Afghanistan, the president also has a timetable there. That's for next August, right? He's got a, I got a year. But that's a, a much more fluid timetable. This timetable in Iraq was very, very strict. He said, he, he said, said all August of 2011 is, for Afghanistan. Is the start of a drawdown. So... That's uh -huh. a much more fluid uh -huh. thing. This I'm was very beginning solid. my diet. I'm beginning the diet. Exactly. This was very in, in Iraq. It was all combat troops have to be out by the end of this month. Uh huh. And we were with them when the last guys left. Hence, ending Operation Iraqi Freedom, which he's going to announce on Tuesday. Uh -huh. Afghanistan. The deadline is the is a little bit more flexible. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. They took off his clothes. They pissed in his hands I told them to stop But then I joined in Being here in Baghdad has been an honor and a privilege in a way that makes the phrase honor and a privilege not feel like a cliche anymore. But if out of all the things we've been able to do here this week, if, if out of all of those things I could do only one, if I had to pick the single hour in which I learned the most since I arrived here, it would be this. So, um, right now it's after dark, uh, it's still during Ramadan, but because the sun has gone down, because the day has ended, uh, the fast can be broken and the family can eat. We're here with the Abu Abbas family, they're a working class, uh, poor Shiite family um, who lives here in um, Arasat district. This is not a house that they own, they're being um, allowed to stay here. Uh, it's a very warm night, it's very hot. Uh, they do have some electricity, you can tell the lights are on, there's fan blowing. Um, they're able to get electricity uh, in part because there's a restaurant across the street that has a large generator and they're able to get some power um, from them uh, through our friends O'Hare and through uh, Richard's friends here. Uh, and with the help of Kian, our NBC producer here, we've been able to be invited to this family's home, which is a huge honor um, and a privilege to sit here. Uh, and they've agreed to talk with me a little bit about, uh, you know, what everybody likes to talk, to about, talk about over dinner, politics, war, and uh, George Bush. Right now there's no Iraqi government. If there is an Iraqi government, can it do good for people? Or will it, do, are they not hopeful about that? يعني الحين الحكومة العراقية like I said, the government, the government has been around for eight years now, and they've done nothing. It's you and your group. So it's not about the government. It's about private sects and groups that you might belong to. He's like, look at me. I have got nothing. I have no job. I can't get a job. I'm having a really hard time, but that's because I don't know anybody. So the government isn't doing anything for us. The people who know the groups and sects, they're all right. But the government should be here for people like us, and they're not. 
as a 21-year-old man, as a young man, with all of the violence in Iraq and in Baghdad over the past few years, has he felt pressure from the violent groups in, it, in any, any direction in order to get involved in anything like that? Has he been pressured? He says, I don't mix with them. I don't go near them. I stay really far away from them. I've been threatened twice. They've come after me. They've come after my family. But I just keep trying my best to stay away from anyone who might want to. Because I'm my parents' only son. And I can't. I just can't get into that. He's just saying that Iraq is a country of so many blessings. It's a great country and we have so much. But these people, this government, has come in and taken over and it's just destroyed us. The only reason we have five watts of power is because of the restaurant across the street. God bless them for giving us five watts of power. Otherwise, we would have nothing. We would be boiling. We wouldn't be able to sit here. We would be boiling and I'm just working. I am an employee and I'm working and this is how I live right now. This is how I'm living as an employee in this country right now. This is how I'm living. This government has done nothing to help us, nothing to give us any electricity. Really, if it wasn't for this restaurant, I would have nothing, but thankfully they're giving us something. Generators can't even survive this heat. Generators, if you bring one, it just breaks. And I have this entire family that I have to keep alive. Iraq has had um, 30 years of war and sanctions, war and sanctions and war and sanctions and war and sanctions. Um, what's, the, what's the best thing that could happen to Iraq now after so much, so much pain? Only one thing, one leader, that is all. One leader. What's happening now with all? The best thing that can happen to Iraq is to just have one leader. Under Saddam, Saddam was here for 30 years or more. And I was afraid to talk to my daughters. I was afraid to speak about anything to my daughters. There's not a single house in this country that doesn't have at least one or two martyrs, people who have died in war, family members who have died in war. I've been hit here, I've been hit in my stomach. There isn't one single family in this country that hasn't had a family member killed in war. But what this government is doing now, seven years of no electricity, is unacceptable. It's just ridiculous. How can we live for seven years without electricity? No one likes or misses Saddam. No one I've spoken to, at least, nor anyone I've heard about. Everybody is glad that Saddam is gone. And, and everyone remembers that under Saddam there was electricity, at least here in Baghdad. A violent autocracy is a constant crime against its subjects. But freedom itself is not life, and life here in many ways is awful. Basic, basic services, safety, opportunity, corruption, it's awful. Now, life in a lot of places is awful, but as Americans, this is our awful. This is us now because of what America did here. What happens next here comes down on them, on them, on their kids, but it is also on our conscience. 
And to an extent we will long fight about, it is our responsibility because of America's war here. It's Thomas from Long Beach. Two things really bothered me about the Glenn Beck religious revival rally. First, Beck and his friends do not get to speak for all of Christianity. This is a common misconception in the debates over equal rights for gays and lesbians, for example, that it's faith versus not faith, when it's really one very specific and narrow interpretation of one faith versus all the others, many of which are open and affirming. Second, if Glenn Beck wants to put his faith front and center, aren't we allowed to question some parts of the Mormon Church, especially in terms of public policy, like its strong support of Proposition 8? It's like when Sarah Palin paraded her soldier son and youngest Down Syndrome child in front of the cameras for three months, but acted offended when anyone questioned their support of abstinence-only education with a pregnant teenager. It drove me crazy. Either everything's on the table or nothing is, but these neocons cannot have it both ways. Thanks a lot. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Jason from Texas calling. Um, I wanted to comment on the upcoming elections, uh, the midterms in 2010. Um, I think, you know, I, I hope that, that we can prove the mainstream media wrong because the mainstream media has been trying to set the tone for this. Well, you know, the Republicans are, the Republicans are you know, dominate the elections and you know, Democrats are going to get creamed and all. And, you know, I, I just hope we can prove them wrong and, and, and just say, you know, I hope that, the, you know, some of the Tea Party candidates, some of the fringe people out there, like Sharon Engel, uh, you know, kind of scare progressives into voting. Democrat this election, because honestly, the alternative is a lot worse. Hey, Jay, this is Larry Nocella. I'm calling from Philadelphia, and I am so glad that you finally called out that standard line for the midterm that the Democrats are just going to lose because that always happens and that uh, the base is unexcited and that sort of thing. So what I think is going to happen is I think the Republicans will make some gains, but I don't think they're going to make as much as they think they should. I think that um, Obama's charisma charisma and um just his overall plan is still a solid one it's not as uh extremely liberal as i would like because i am a communist and i am evil but um it is still the direction the country needs to go it's not as far or as fast as i'd like to go but i think he's pushing in the right direction and i think the republicans are in for a bit of surprise because they aren't really fielding any candidates that are saying anything remarkable i think the um enthusiasm gap is going to cut both ways of course the republicans will probably pick up a few seats and declare ultimate victory of the universe but i don't think it's going to be nearly as great and I look forward to your podcast with lots of excerpts making fun of them for making it sound as though they won everything in the world when really they just grabbed a few extra seats.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks, of course, to those who chose to uh, dial into the phone line. If you'd like to leave a message to be played on the show yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And now, you know, I, I do just have to say about the phone line, it's it's going well. Lots of people are calling in and leaving messages, and so I just have to say that it's, it's getting to the point where uh, I, it's very, very possible that I'm not going to be able to get to every single person's voicemail. I will do my best to get through as many as possible. Uh, if the message you leave is a little overly long, it may be edited for time. Uh, but, you know, I, I will definitely try to get at least every perspective on the show. So, you know, if, if you call in and have a message that's very, very similar to someone else's, I may use, you know, one and not the other. So just be aware of that. Of course, the premise of the show is best of the left. So if, uh, you know, the Young Turks and Colbert and Matto all get edited by me. I'm sure you you won't take offense at uh, maybe being edited just so I get the very best of what you have to say as well. Now, I just had a quick story, actually. Uh, I, so again, I want to thank everyone who votes over at Podcast Alley that keeps the show way up in the top 10 list. You know, sometimes we're in the number one slot as I'm talking. We're in number two, but it's great. You know, everyone who goes to podcastalley.com and votes for all the progressive shows there, uh, Best of the Left, Young Turks, and Blast the Right are all there in the top 10. Uh, you know, I really just want to thank you guys. But I had this one thing, um, you know, when when you vote, you, you absolutely you do not have to do this, but sometimes people choose to also leave a comment along with their, their vote. And I found this one uh, funny. So David writes, uh, I'm a political junkie who doesn't have time to read all day. I put best of the left on and go about my business. I often listen to podcasts several times to commit parts to memory. Jay is a libertarian, which I'm not keen about, but he does put on a fair and balanced show. That is important. I like to hear everyone's side, although he exposes the Republicans more. They have more to expose. And I, I am trying to figure out what I could have said to lead uh, this guy to think that I'm a libertarian. I, I'm certainly not, uh, but I, I found it interesting and it reminded me of one of my funniest stories from uh, debating a libertarian. Years ago, I had this job where, you know, I was about the only person at, at the place who cared about politics at all. And I found one other guy who was mildly interested in politics, but he turned out to be a libertarian. And uh, and, and so I would try to debate him, but it was like, uh, you know, it, it was almost like he wasn't fighting fair because I would have kind of the, you know, I, like I said, this was years ago. I was kind of, you know, dipping my toe in the whole political debate arena. Like I wasn't really good at it yet. Uh, not that I'm really good at it now, but I knew a lot less then than I, than I know now. And so I would try to give like kind of the standard, you know, liberal ideas and, and you know, hey, this is kind of my perspective and d doesn't that make more sense? And, and this is deep in the Bush era and whatnot. And, and then he would come back at me just completely out of right field with things, you know, he would agree with me about a lot of things, which would surprise me. And then he would bring up things that didn't make any sense. So I was like, well, I don't even know how to debate that because that doesn't make any sense. And one of the best things he ever said to me was, Hey, Jay, you, you, you know what uh, constitutional amendment I could do without? And I said, oh, geez, uh, no, no, Doug, um, what constitutional amendment could you do without? He said, the 19th. And I said, all right, well, you know, I'm sorry, you're, you're going to have to fill me in. Which, which one was the 19th exactly? And he said, the one that gave uh, women the right to vote. 
And keeping in mind, like we're standing here at, at work, like surrounded by women who, who also work there. And I was like, really? Like, really, Doug? Are you, you know, first of all, are you really going to have that opinion? And then second of all, are you actually going to espouse that opinion? And he went on and doubled down. He's like, well, you know, because think about it. it. Seemed like the country was doing pretty well up until that point. And it's not that it's so much worse now. It's just didn't need to happen. The country was doing fine. So anyways, that's my favorite libertarian story for my personal life. Uh, I, I hope that clears up any misconceptions about where I stand. So that'll just about do it for today. I want to thank a couple of members who make the show possible, of course, before I go. Peter H. signed up for a monthly membership, uh, you know, sent in five bucks a month starting uh, back in April on April 24th and has stuck with the show since then. Thank you very much, Peter. And then Jesus M signed up for uh, a yearly membership on July 19th. And Jesus went ahead and signed up for, uh, for uh, just a little above the, um, you know, the, the regular membership level just to help out the show a little bit more. So of course I always, you know, really, really appreciate that is, uh, you know, just going a little bit above and beyond. I want to thank him especially for that. So Peter, Jesus, all of the members, individual donors, everyone who makes the show possible, everyone who goes and, and decides to, um, you know, if they're going to shop on Amazon, if they're going to uh, you know, take the time to go to my website first and click through. I can't thank all you guys enough. Uh, you are who make the show possible. As simple as that. So that's going to be it for today. Everyone can support the show, of course, by continuing to tell everyone you know about it. It's totally a word of mouth show. It really does make a difference when you tell all your friends. And you can stay connected to the show between episodes and even help spread the word online by joining us on Facebook and Twitter. And I think that really works. You know, I, you know, I'm not a Facebook expert by any stretch of the imagination. I was kind of forced into it by the show. If, if, if the show didn't have a fan page, I probably wouldn't even have a Facebook account. That's how much I'm not really into it myself. But for everyone who is into it, um, and you guys know how to do it and you, like the show and you post links on your own wall and it sends out to all your friends. Like I actually see those, uh, those clicks coming into my website again. And I'm not even an expert on keeping track of, uh, where people are coming from link to my website, but I, I see it's uh, it's a pretty significant number of people coming from Facebook. And so I think that's entirely you guys, uh, um, you know, sending out to your friends, people who don't already listen to the show and then they check it out because of your recommendation. So seriously, Thanks very much for, for doing that. So anyways, of course, now uh, for details on the show itself, links to sources and music used in the show, all of that is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought now black and white. Up on a picture that wasn't right